0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. We are entering into a week that is called Worldwide Holy Week, or the Passion Week, or the uh, week when we celebrate the passion story of Jesus. For Christians, it is the epicenter of our faith. In fact, in one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the book of John, John devotes half of his book to the first 30 plus years of Jesus' life, and the other half he spends on the last week. Half of his book is spent describing the events that happened in that last week. And so we talk about today as Palm Sunday. We remember and celebrate the day when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Palm leaves in the air, waving back and forth. Palm leaves being laid on the ground. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Shouted from the mouths of adults and children. Welcoming the King of kings and the Lord of lords into the city where they assumed it was time for him to take over. I love thinking about what our kids are doing. Because on Palm Sunday, they always have palm leaves. You don't find palm leaves around here a whole lot except for Palm Sunday. They wave them and they run. And somebody downstairs, my guess is uh, maybe Lane Van Veckhoven today, is playing the beast of burden and allowing children to ride on his back as he walks through town and the palm branches are waved, right? Jesus enters the city on the Sunday before Easter triumphantly declaring that he is receiving their adulation. He has been the one that has told his disciples again and again, the time is not now, the time is not now. Don't tell people the time is not now. It's not yet time. And on Palm Sunday, he says, it's time. And just as loud as the shouts of Hosanna was the amount of whispers behind the scenes of, how do you think he's going to do it? When is it going to happen? It's the perfect week. It's Passover week. And the whispers of hope Went throughout the Jewish population in Jerusalem. That quickly changed starting on Monday. When instead of rising to power, he started upsetting the ones that were already in control. Turning tables over in the temple. Teaching him parables that caused them to step back for a minute. To cautiously analyze what he was saying. That caused the ire, the fire, the anger that was welling up within them to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Until the point where the plan went full into motion. Where one of his disciples would betray him. They would pay him and they would capture Jesus, convict him and put him to death. Jesus always steps ahead of where they thought they were gathered his disciples for one final meal on what we call Monday Thursday, the Thursday before Easter. And as he sat in the upper room with his disciples and ate a final last supper with them, he interpreted for them a meal that had been interpreted since the day they were born in the homes in which they grew up. And this time it was different. No longer were they talking about an ancient time when the people of God were removed from a slavery. He was talking about his own death and his own payment. As they gathered around that table, he washed their feet in preparation. He interpreted the meal for them. He taught them about one that was coming, about what was going to happen. He was preparing them for the end. And the disciples who had become used to hearing things from Jesus and not quite understanding what was happening were just sitting there hoping that it would all make sense soon. And it did, just not in the way they thought. When the supper is finished. One disciple has already departed. And the rest stand with Jesus and they walk to the Mount of Olives to a garden where Jesus would spend time praying and wrestling with the Father. And the closest of his disciples would stand not very far away from him and could not even stay awake as Jesus poured out his soul to the Father. And as he literally sweated drops of blood saying, not my will but yours, the plan was fully in motion. To end his life. Not long after he finished praying. The time had come. The time that had been promised and planned. From before everything began. That was declared in Genesis chapter 3. That Jesus would come and defeat the enemy. The next 24 hours would be the most important in history until that moment. And it may have sounded a little something like this. لا oh! انشئ that Friday, the Son of God, perfect, sinless Son of God, was crucified by the very people He came to save. What's the name we give for that day? What do we call it? Good Friday. And to think that it was the most horrific moment in the history of the world... That God's Son, Jesus, who had never done a single thing wrong, never sinned in His life, never created any kind of trouble, did any kind of crime, committed any kind of sin, was crucified for you and for me. And we call it Good Friday. Here's what I want to do today out of Galatians chapter 3. I want to look at one verse. And answer the question, why in the world do we call it Good Friday? Now here's the thing that I want to tell you on the front end. This is kind of a spoiler alert for you. I'm going to tell you on the front end why it's called Good Friday. And then we're going to walk through how we see that. But here's the reason that we call it Good Friday. is because it answers one of the four or five biggest questions that every human being has to come to terms with sometime in their life. In fact... This verse we're going to look at in Galatians chapter 3 in just a moment answers many of those questions that are the most important questions that life has to offer in one sentence, one verse, one place. A couple of 20th century philosophers and theologians said that there are three or four questions that every human being has to struggle with, has to think about, has to come to an answer for in order to live a productive life and in order to make sense of their own existence. And the first question they have to answer is, how did we get here? Like, why are we here? You probably haven't stopped and thought about that a lot in the last few days. But one of the strongest arguments for the case that there is a God that exists is that there is something intelligent living on this planet, in this universe, as opposed to there not being. Scientifically, the odds were stacked significantly against something developing at all, much less You and me having conversations, dwelling upon our own existence, thinking about what life is all about. And the first question that everybody has to come up with, has to deal with in their life, is how did we get here? That's why believing, trusting, Genesis chapter 1, about the creation of the world, that at its origin God spoke, and the world came into being. However that happened, whatever that looked like, having that conviction in our heart, is of primary importance, because without that, none of the rest of it makes sense. The second question we have to answer is not only how did we get here but what went wrong? Let me ask you a question. Do you realize our earth is messed up? Can I get an amen of the house ring? I mean stuff has gone wrong here. We live in a world that is messed up. Jacked up. How many of you realize that the same is true for you. That you're messed up. I am. I am one messed up human being. And when you think about it, Scripture tells us, how many of us are messed up? How does Scripture say? All. Oh, you know, in the biblical word, all means all, right? Everyone. Now think about it for a minute. If there are over 7 billion messed up people living on this earth, it really is a testimony to God's grace that we hadn't already messed it up worse than we have. You ask the question, Well how did it get this way? How do we get messed up? The third question you ask is that you have to answer is can we fix it? Can you do anything about it? Or is this just who we are? You see, people out there that try to tell you don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in the gospel, don't believe in what the church is teaching you, they don't have an answer to that question at all. Because their answer is, we just try harder. And if you take the history of humanity, that hadn't worked out so well. you realize that at the beginning of the 20th century, that, like the last one, like that started in... 1900, at the beginning of the 20th century, do you realize that there was this movement across the world, including in Christian circles, that said by the next hundred years, technology would advance to the point that human beings would be out of war, everyone on the planet would be fed, and there would be peace on the whole earth. You know what happened in the 20th century? None of that. Right? Right? It was the bloodiest century in the history of the world when it came to war. Hunger increased significantly. And oppression and injustice became more than it had ever been. How do you fix it? And the fourth question you have to ask is, what do I do about what I know? Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Now, this isn't going to answer the first question. I'll go ahead and tell you that on the phone. How did we get here? Because here's the thing. The Bible states that in Genesis chapter 1 and never argues for the existence of God again. You know why? Because it just assumes that we're going to believe that we didn't get here on our own. The Bible never defends the existence of God. It assumes it Because most of us in our heart knows there's something greater than ourselves. And so the question becomes, what kind of God is it? Well, that's what the Bible describes. The kind of God that we serve. The kind of God that is there. And then it tells us what went wrong, how we fix it, and what we can do about it in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, let me ask you a quick question. This doesn't take a biblical scholar here. What word is being emphasized in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13? Curse, right? Three times. If you look actually in verse 10, if you look just up a few verses in verse 10, it's used twice there. So five times in two verses, the word curse is used. Now, you tell me, when I say the word curse, what do you think of? Bad things, Right? Like, what kind of, what do you mean bad things? So, the word here means, variety of meanings, afflicted. Not like the genes you pay way too much money for. Doomed for destruction. Damned. Set on a course for disaster. And scripture says here, That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so the answer to that second question of what went wrong is simply this. We are under the curse of God's law. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave His people a standard by which they were to live. He gave them something to live by, and then He said, go do it, and guess what happened? They failed miserably. And not only them, but every person that has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ failed miserably when it came to living by the law that God has given us to live by. And as a result, we are guilty under God's law, we are condemned under God's law, and we have been separated from God. We are under the curse of God's law. You say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about those people that never heard about this stuff? Well, here's the truth. Every human being is born with this sense inside of them that something is wrong. And that there's a difference between what is right and what is wrong. And as much as they want to tell us that it's up to your own interpretation about what you believe is right or wrong, people have an innate sense, an inner sense of the difference between right and wrong. I was thinking about this this week. When the images of what happened to that village in Syria began to flood my screen, television, computer, phone, iPad, nobody that I heard, right, left, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, said, I don't see any problem with that. The images of the babies, the images of the children being choked by the gas. Nobody said, "Eh, nothing wrong with that. Because inside we knew that was wrong. You hear about a rape, or abuse, or a murder, and nobody thinks, "Uh uh-huh, I don't really have a problem with that. If they do in our society, we call them insane. Insane. And inside us, this part that tells us that there is a right and wrong also verifies inside of us. Maybe not those things specifically, but we have all violated our own sense of what right and wrong is. We have chosen to do things that are not in line with what is right. And as a result, we are condemned before God. Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous, not even one. You're like, man, pastor, it's kind of a downer sermon here. Where's some John 3.16? Let's get back to some good stuff. I love John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.17, for God did not send his world unto the condemn the world. But that through him the world might be saved. But here's the thing. In order for John 3.16 and John 3.17 to mean anything, John 3.18 does as well. And I know that at sporting events nobody holds up a sign that says John 3.18. And yet John 3.18 says that if you're in this world and you have rejected Jesus Christ, it says you have been condemned already. That those outside of Jesus are already in a state of being condemned. The way the world got so bad is that we individually, in line with our lineage back to Adam and Eve, have chosen to walk away from what God has called us to do. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then 6.23 reminds us, The wages of sin is death. Every single one of us have sinned, and what we deserve as payment for that is death. Separation from the Lord. You see, the problem is, a holy, perfect, just God cannot, cannot interact with imperfect humanity. It just can't happen. No matter how pure you think you are, no matter how good you think you might be, no matter how straight and narrow you think you walk, Perfect God cannot interact with imperfect humanity. Because in that interaction, it would diminish His perfection. If I gave you a glass of pure water, and I said, before you drink it, I just want to add one little thing to it. Just the tiniest little couple of bacteria that can cause death. I'm just going to put a couple of things in there. Would you drink that water? Why? Because it's no longer pure And what's inside of it could kill you. God can't mix any part of him with any sort of imperfection. And here's the problem we have. We don't want to believe this. In fact, one of my favorite phrases recently is Paul Tripp says that when we are confronted with our own sinfulness, we activate with inside of us one of the greatest defense attorneys that has ever lived. Your personal defense lawyer about yourself. How many of you ever been in a disagreement or a discussion with your spouse, a friend, or somebody? We already got hands raised, they don't know where I'm going, right? And they say something to you about something you have done, and you have got Exhibit 12, 13, and 18 ready to go. Oh, so you want to talk about the dish I left in the sink this week. Well, let's talk about the one you left last Thursday and the Tuesday before that. And three weeks ago when I found that under the bed. What about that? And if you're a lady in the house, something like, and let's not forget September 10th, 2012. Can I get an amen? For, well, may, you may not want to do that, guys. You may not want to do that. Because this would become one of those moments they would later use in their defense. Remember when you're at church and he asked? Anybody here get defensive when somebody says something about you? Yeah. We activate. Our pride goes after it. And when we hear you're under the sin. No, 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 no. You're talking about all those people that don't do anything good. But scripture says all of us are. And what happens is over time when we trust that we're good enough or that we're not under the curse, our hearts harden against him and our lives are hopeless without Jesus. You know what's wrong with the world? Is we got billions of people living that are hopeless without Jesus. And in a crowd this size, there are some of you in this room right now that do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you are under the curse of God's law. And you are separated and hopeless without Him. But Galatians 3.13 tells us that's not the end of the story. Because it tells us that Christ came, Jesus came, under the sentence of God's judgment. 313, if you still got it open, it's not going to be on the screen if you still got it open and says this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Here's the important thing. Everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. That is speaking about Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. You don't have to turn there. But in the Old Testament law, it says that those people that create or do especially heinous crimes, that create comm- Problems in the community Because of the seriousness Of the crime they have committed Are to be put to death And it says that Especially bad ones Are not just to be put to death But after they are be put to death They are to be put on a tree That's what happened In their place They would put them on a tree They would put them In the community They would hang them up there And say this is an example Of one who is condemned Who has done what is wrong Who is no longer good Look at him Beware of him They would hang them From all to see On wood And it says Cursed is the one Who is hung On a tree And what happens in the New Testament when Jesus dies, he doesn't just die a normal death. He dies the most excruciating death in the history of the world. In fact, that word excruciating was made up because there wasn't a good word to describe how painful the death on the cross was. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. And what it's saying there is that Jesus hung on a tree and the idea is that He who was not cursed became cursed for us so that we might be free from the curse. He covered our guilt. By His stripes we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That Jesus took on our sins. He paid the price. He sacrificed His life. He paid for you and for me. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, the word redeemed is used. And that means to buy back. To go and to buy back from someone what is yours. It's used in the Old Testament specifically to talk about slaves that are bought at auction by an owner and then set free. Or it's used to talk about in Hosea and Gomer where Hosea marries a prostitute. She comes and becomes his wife and then leaves him to go back to prostitution. And Hosea is commanded by God to go to the center of town where the prostitutes are being sold into slavery and to buy back his wife. And he says, this is the way that I have purchased you. When I was in seminary, I uh, I worked a part-time job. Some of you know this, some of you may not. I I worked a part-time job as a... Um, preschool assistant I mean I know when you look at me You hear me, you think Preschool assistant That's what I was So that's what I worked 3 to 6 in the afternoons On Mondays we had staff had to be there at 12.30 12.30 to 6 And this wasn't your normal, ordinary preschool. This was for wealthy people in Fort Worth. And I don't know if you know anything about Fort Worth, but Fort Worth is cattle and oil country, and there are lots of wealthy people in Fort Worth, Texas. And the wealthiest of the wealthy sent their kids to this particular school. And so the school, while we were there, had all kinds of cool things, pottery wheels and kilns and funding and all that kind of stuff. And while we were there, they were trying to build a new school because they had started and rented out of a church facility. And they were going to build a state-of-the-art preschool. And their big fundraising event every year was this event called Bids for Kids. And I always loved the event. Dressed up, Susan and I would go. We were the poorest people in the room by far. Which was cool because like they would have really good gifts that none of them wanted in silent auction because they already had them. So a friend of mine named Adam, we would go and like we got like rounds of golf at some of the top golf clubs in Fort Worth for like $60 for four rounds of golf with card included. And if you don't play golf, like that's cheap. Like these one round would cost like $120 there because none. they all had memberships. they were like, we're not buying this membership. So you bid once. There you go. Minimum bid. We got it. They saved all their money for the kids' artwork. And they would live auction the kids' artwork. Now, when I use the word artwork, that's a very loose definition of what was being sold. Okay? Because, like, for the two-year-old class, artwork was their handprints on a canvas. Like, hands down on a canvas, up on the thing, we're going to auction this off. Now, I've also seen some uh, art in art galleries that looks like a two-year-old could make it, but this was literally two-year-old handprints on a canvas. And that, that was the last event of the night, and people would be gearing up. You could tell as they'd been through some stuff, and then they would bring it. And the two-year-old class always brought the biggest it's the first chance to buy a kid's artwork and hang it in your multi-million dollar home. And I remember sitting there, it may have been the first, I don't know, first or second year. And Susan and I just sitting there elbowing each other when they would make bids on this stuff. What in the world? Like they would start the bids at $2,000 for a canvas of kids' handprints. One year I remember there was a particularly wealthy person that was there. Name was synonymous in Fort Worth. Family that were there. And they put a kid's thing up and they were at the 2,000, 2,500, 4,000, 5,000, and they stalled out kind of at $6,000 for the two-year-old handprint artwork. And somebody raised their hand, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was a number that nobody was approaching. Like $25,000. You think I'm joking I know the last year I was there They sold two of those Because they had two people that didn't want to relent 17,000 each They agreed to make a new one for them And uh, yeah, exactly It took them five minutes Go put your handprints back on the wall, (laughs) alright 17 grand, just like that I was like, uh, I may start doing this on the side I'm just going to walk in one day Hey, kids, let's just put some handprints here I'm going to go to eBay for a minute, alright eBay didn't even exist back then, alright but I remember when that when that came out, everyone was like, <gasps> thought nobody's going to match that. The most extravagant price ever paid to ransom something is the Son of God's life for you. It's like somebody would have yelled out five million for a two-year-old's handprint. He redeemed us endured our separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His humility overcomes our inner lawyer, our pride. Philippians 2, that he who was equal with God did not consider something to be held on to, but came and became obedient to death on the cross. His gentleness overcame our hardness. He was like a lamb led to slaughter. He did not open his mouth. His death overcame our hopelessness. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I love this. Verse 55 and following Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer hopeless because of Him. You see, that question of what can be done to fix it, Jesus has already fixed it. In fact, one of the last words on the cross was, It is finished. Done. Over. You don't have to do anything about it. That was not, It is finished, dot, dot, dot. That was, It is finished, exclamation point, it's done. Jesus came under the sentence of God's judgment. He has taken your place. that, which means we now stand within the grasp of God's grace. You're at Galatians chapter 3, I want you to turn just a couple couple of verses before that to Galatians chapter 2, and it gives us the option of what we can do. Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is Paul, who is a persecutor of the church, who calls himself the chief of sinners, who is a guy that goes so far down against Jesus that Jesus literally had to stop him and blind him on the road to get him on the right track. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. He says, because of what Christ has done for me, it is not my life anymore. He has paid. He has bought me. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me now look at the next verse and because of that i do not set aside Another translation might be nullify. The idea is I don't do away with, I don't go around, I don't go over, I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. What he's saying is, when you hear that Jesus has died for your sins, when you realize the state we are in without Christ, when you realize that he has paid the penalty for your sin, that he has suffered the separation for your sin, that he has given his life for your sin, you are then faced with a couple of options. One, you can ignore that completely. And there are billions of people throughout this world who have completely ignored the fact that Jesus died for them. And for them, Good Friday has no significance at all. Or you can say, well, I trust in Jesus and I think that's great, but I think I'll need to do more. I need to clean up myself. I need to get right. I need to get better. I need to do more in order to be saved. Or you can do the third thing, which is just simply to accept the grace and mercy that is offered in Jesus Christ and trust him for your salvation. It is by grace through faith that you have been saved, not of your works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. And there are some of you in this room today that you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you are living hopelessly And you may not even know what all that means. I mean, you may not have come into this place thinking you were going to talk about this or understand this or feel anything about this. You just know what it means to live a hopeless life. You know what it means to live a life that is not the direction that you've called. You know what it is to be messed up. You know what it is to have relationships that are messed up. You know what it is to have a life that is in turmoil. You know what it is to go to bed at night with that inner sense that something is wrong. You know what it is in those quiet moments of your life to realize that there's got to be something more than this. I'm here to tell you today that you are in the grasp of God's grace. That He loves you, that He created you for a relationship, He created you for a purpose. And what He desires in your life is you simply to accept who He is. Well, y'all were in the first part of worship this morning. I was downstairs with our kids. Because last week they talked about baptism. Baptism. And so we had a conversation about, okay, what is baptism? Why do you get baptized? What does it look like? I let them ask any questions they wanted to ask me about it. And I said, the first step to any of that, though, is you got to believe in Jesus and accept Him as your Savior. And there are some of you in this room that have never done that. And this morning is the morning to get that right, or at least start asking the questions about what that means. Let me also tell you, there's some of you in this room that... Um, You've been saved. But you've forgotten the depths from which you have fallen. And you have forgotten the fact that you are daily in the need of a Savior. I am not a grace graduate. I have not gotten over my sin. I look forward to the day that Jesus comes again, rescues me, glorifies this body, sanctifies it completely. But I am not there yet. And until that day, until he takes me home to be with him, I am in constant need of God's grace and mercy. Sometimes we forget that as church folk. I just want to remind you that this week is all about the significant, extravagant, over-the-top price that was paid for your sins and for mine. Maybe this week is a time just to reignite your life in that direction. We're going to have a time of response. Band's going to come and lead us. I'm just going to ask you in this moment, what is the response that God's calling you to make today? Let's pray together.